You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 60 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around I am going to be covering The Nom number 53, which is the second part of the very first Punisher Invades The Nom two-parter that we started looking at the last time around. I've chosen You Need Love Like I Do don't you, in parentheses, by Gladys Knight and the Pips to bring us in. It was number 34 on the Billboard Hot 100, the same week that last episode's selection, Instant Karma by John Lennon, was number 3, and Let It Be by the Beatles was number 1. The song stayed on the Hot 100 for 8 weeks, peaking at number 25, and is one of the group's lesser-known top 40 hits. They, of course, are best known for Midnight Trains to Georgia, but I chose this one because, well, I liked it, and I wanted to play it a little soul for us today. Our story is The Long Sticks, Part 2, and is from the Nom number 53, which was released on Christmas Day, 1990, at least according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, with the February 1991 cover date. The cover is by Jorge Zafino, and shows a soldier who I assume is Frank Castle carrying his weapons through the jungle with a skull in the background and the tag Mark of the Executioner. Just like last issue, it's bannered as The Punisher Invades the Nam, and the logo in the upper left-hand corner of the book is the Punisher's skull wearing a marine helmet. It's not a particularly great cover. It looks like a bad impersonation of either Klaus Janssen or Bill Sienkiewicz, and while I wasn't the biggest fan of last issue's cover either, this doesn't improve things at all. I'm sorry. But let's get into the story. It was written by Roger Salek, penciled by Mike Harris, inked by James Jimmy Palmiotti, lettered by Jade Mode, colored by Ed Lazzolari, editor was Don Daly, Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. We open up where we left off. Frank Castle's seemingly lifeless body is hanging in a cell in an MVA prison somewhere in Laos. But of course he's not dead, and as the guard investigates his corpse, Castle springs to life, kills him, and steals an AK-47, which conveniently has a bayonet attached to the muzzle. Frank uses that and the darkness to his advantage to kill a couple more and comes upon a supply cache as well as his own gun, which was taken from him when he was captured. Among the supplies is a can of paint and a crate of C4, which Castle steals and wires, eventually blowing up the entire camp. The explosion is noticed by the soldiers in the outskirts of the camp who realize that the American sniper has gotten out, and as they return... 
they see a comrade strung up in a tree with a white skull painted on his chest. The monkey sees the dead soldier and says he knows the American is mocking him. One of the other NVA soldiers says, Hey, look, this guy is strung up with a net cord. And he pulls it, causing the tree to blow up. The monkey gets frustrated and tries to figure out where Frank might be, saying he was so big and stupid that he's probably halfway to his base by now. However, when one of the other soldiers gets shot, the monkey realizes that Frank is still out there. They head into the jungle looking for him with the money taking up the rear. One of the two other NVA soldiers spots a white skull painted on a tree and then springs a booby trap, getting killed by a very heavy falling branch. The other soldier begins cracking up, saying, He's going to kill us all. Do you not see? We cannot beat him. He's not a man. He's something else. Uh... Punisher. The monkey says, You disgust me, and kicks him, calling him a coward. He then sends that soldier out into the open grass as bait, and Frank takes the shot, killing the soldier and giving up his position. The monkey fires and hits the scope Frank had set up as a decoy, which gives away his position, and Frank kills him. With a white skull painted on his chest, Frank takes the skull necklace off the body of the monkey and stands in an open field with smoke billowing up in the distance to form a skull. I leave the monkey lying in the dirt with his busted weapon in the hole where his face used to be, the caption reads. I hope his buddies find him. I hope they take a good long look. Maybe they'll think twice before crossing their next marine sniper. And if they don't, fine. I'll be around. Okay, so like I said last episode, the art is absolutely gorgeous. And like I said last episode, on its own merits, this story is good. But I don't think it belongs to the NOM. We will see the Punisher again in issues 67, 68, and 69, as well as in the Punisher Invades the NOM Final Invasion. That's a trade paperback What was su- that collected was supposed to be um, three issues of the series had the series not been canceled with issue 84. Issues 67 to 69 were written by Chuck Dixon, and the uh, the three in the Punisher trade were by Don, Don Lomax, and, and they were the regular writers in the series at the time of the publication. So I'm hoping that those stories are a little bit better than what we have here, because this honestly is very much an action movie with little to no nuance. And I'm not against those types of stories, but whereas the first part of this had some good moments of tension and suspense, the second part is, well, it's ridiculous at certain moments. Oh, look, this enemy soldier calls him a Punisher. Oh, look, there's the white skull. Oh, look, there's a shot of Frank posing with a white skull painted on his chest. Can you hear my facepalm through the mic? And I know, I know I sound, I'm being, that I'm being really mean here, but honestly... This this isn't Predator. This isn't Schwarzenegger. This is I don't I don't need those moments of him setting all the traps and and taking everybody out. And I mean the most intriguing part of this issue was the cat and mouse game that wound up being played by Frank Castle and the monkey. All of which could have been built up to the moment where Frank gets his man. In fact, I really liked that whole moment, the two snipers squaring off with this NVA soldier's bait between them, and the fact that Frank was pretty much knew exactly what the monkey was doing, and setting up a decoy scope, and, like, you know, that he deliberately flashed it, so he fired. I mean, it was really good. It made sense. It was good storytelling. 
But there's all of this Punisher badass superhero stuff on top of all of it that just does not work for me in an issue of this comic book. Turning now to the back of the book, there are two pinups by Wayne Van Zandt. Uh, the first shows an LRRP and has some text. Until the Vietnam War, no army in the world had ever seen anything quite like the Long Range Reconnaissance Patrols, LORP per, pronounced LERPs, especially trained in the, in the Na Trang Rakondo School. They were taught survival, field medicine, land navigation, silent movement, photography, communications, helicopter insertion and extraction, and escape and invasion. Many achieved ranger status. Moving deep into enemy-controlled territory in groups of four to six men, their job was to gather intelligence and call in air to artillery and artillery strikes on large enemy formations, since communications were so important. The groups frequently carried two radios. Silence was critical. Communications to each other were through hand signals or written on note paper, on green or brown paper, and then destroyed so the enemy could not find it. They frequently slept in their equipment and in shifts. As much as possible, L. Lerps avoided contact with the enemy by calling in airstrikes, and by their own skill, they frequently inflicted heavy casualties on units much larger than their own. The second pinup shows a student walking on campus and seeing an End the War Now poster. He's got a scowl on his face, and I think it's Ed Marks, um, who I know is eventually going to going to show up uh, in in the in the book uh, as we get further and further down the road again and uh, so I was thought that was a nice touch now on to letters and ads we only have two letters in this issue there are two punisher advertisements for what's going on in the punisher uh series for punisher war journal number 27 and punisher number 46 um Michael Barnes writes writes in. He says, this is a classy comic. It's wonderful. Um, I don't think of it as a comic, but a continuing saga, kind of a godfather of comic books. Uh, he says, coming from a family that was torn apart by the war, I've always been on a mission to find out what went on over there. I've seen all the movies, read a lot of the books, and even took a class in my college. Your magazine is a wonderful compliment to the knowledge I've already gained. To this point, I would be honored if some vets who read this comic would write me regarding some of their experiences. On the matter of issues 97 to 100, part of me wants so much to see their lives after the war, but I can't help but feel it would be more realistic to end at number 96 and not a word, another word about it. After all, that's how our wonderful country and most of its people treated the vets. Or maybe after number 96, you could pick a different branch of the service or even a different unit of the army. I would love to read about the 75th Sea Rangers six-man squads and start a new saga. Finally, I want to thank you and the rest of the NOM staff for doing a great job. You're doing them, and most of all, I'd like to thank the Vietnam veterans. That's Michael Barnes. Matthew Hayes from Epson, New Hampshire, writes in, and he says, I'm a longtime fan of the NOM. I really think you're doing a good job in portraying the way the war really was. I'm only 20, but I've heard many stories from vets, and your comic is very true to what they say. On a different note, I read that Roger Salek is a fifth-degree black belt, I'm a martial artist as well. I was wondering if you could list the names of writers, pencil, etc., and the marvel that practice martial arts, including what art they practice and what their rank is. Thank you. And the editor, Don Daly, who is editing this, writes in and says, Yes, Matthew, Roger Salek is a fifth-degree black belt, and though we pretty we don't know his rank, 
We are pretty sure that Mike Barron, writer of the Punisher and Punisher War Journal, is adept in the martial arts. Also, Fearless Fran Burke of Marvel's mysterious 11th floor is yet another person whose hand can be used like a knife, but she still can't chop tomatoes with it. Ha ha. And the bottom right-hand corner of the page has two panels from the Death of Joe Hallin issues coming up with uh, Joe arriving home and then a little girl asking, that right man, you kill any Vietnamese babies? And uh, it says, the Eagles has landed. We've been talking about it for months, and now we'll find out what the hype's about. The Death of Joe Hallin, a novel in five parts by Ch- Chuck Dixon, Wayne Van Zandt, and Tony DiZaniga demanded. And that'll be next issue and next episode. There are only three NOM notes this month. There's Debt Core, Detonation Core, used for clearing landing zones and heavily forested areas. Didi, to exit hurriedly or flee. And ROK, or Rock, Republic of Korea. Ads this month. Ski or Die from Ultra Games, which show a guy in a really neon snowboard outfit. On a snowboard, doing some sort of snowboard move while a penguin looks at him. That's for the Nintendo. Mega Man 3. I have this game. This game is not easy. Um, Although I will say there is a trick that if you hold down, I think it's right. If you have two controllers in the Nintendo and you hold down right, and then you can get kind of like a super jump. And then if you uh, keep holding it down and you fall down a pit, you essentially die, but you get, like, immortality. It was an interesting way to play the game, but you had to keep yourself, like, you know... You had to keep the uh, controller down the whole time. Uh, the collective books thing with the uh, with the football people, this had for Destiny of an Emperor, which has something to do with... It looks like a role-playing game for the Nintendo Entertainment System, and there's this whole text piece about what the game is about, about how, like, how all the work that went into it is this conquering this game will take you centuries, and just this whole thing about being an emperor and... And how you have to change the course of history forever. And, and it's just really complicated. I don't remember this game very well. So I don't know if it's sold. And I suppose it's one of those ones that was underproduced. And probably did not um, fetch a decent amount of money on eBay. Um, there's a Silver Surfer Nintendo ad. Which I think there's no... Um, there is no video game screen caps, but there is some what looks like Ron Lim Silver Surfer art. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, the same 80s sweater guys playing that Dungeon Dragons board game we've seen. A science fiction book club ad. Choose any five of these for $1 with your membership. Well, let's see if we got anything. Um... That I recognize. Nothing. Oh, the Lost Star Trek The Lost Years by J.M. Dillard. I remember reading that and really, really enjoying that that whole saga. Uh, some Piers Anthony. Arthur C. Clarke. The Book of Lost Tales by Tolkien. Bullpen Bulletin. Something about Nightcat? Not... Some, yeah, Dennis Cowan doing Nightcat. There's a picture of Nightcat that looks like a really bad 80s um, 
almost Mad Max looking villain, even though this is the early nineties. Um, and a bunch of stuff I'm just not going to look at. The bullpen bulletins columns have not been that interesting over the last few months, to be completely honest with you. Uh, there is a video games complete guide to Nintendo video games. And there's this guy, he's like his, he's holding a joystick at a television. And there's this whole thing about a full color buying guide and he's saying hey Nintendo lovers here's the only full color guide for Nintendo and Game Boy cool reviews and ratings on gameplay help you choose which games to conquer plus great sneak previews let it let you in on an awesome Nintendo adventures to come and it's just he's like wearing a big hat with a giant bill and the hat slightly sideways and he's like yelling at me in the second panel and I, I there, I remember like there were guide. There's still guidebooks to video games and stuff, but some of these were just a little ridiculous, and this looks like one of them. Uh, the Punisher is giving us three issues free, and oh, Three Musketeers Adventures, number one in the series. Deep in the Peruvian desert, the military authorities are alarmed and baffled by a strange discovery: a giant three and what appears to be several red letters. A three. Three what? Some kind of alien message? We can't tell, sir. It's just too big. Airborne, can you make it out? As the sweepers clear off miles of sand. You're not going to believe it, sir. What could we tell the president? It's a giant three musketeers bar. No, we'll eat it ourselves. Where will three musketeers turn up next? Big on chocolate. And then there's the same back cover Punisher video game ad we saw last time. So that is it for uh, this issue. When I get back, I have some extra stuff for us in terms of a book review of In the Lake of the Woods by Tim O'Brien. So stick around. I'll be back after this. It's been a great ride, but all good things must come to an end. Our paths might not cross again in this lifetime. Take care, all of you. Bye, Grandpa. Goodbye, Mom. Bye, Master Roshi and Mr. Turtle. Goodbye, my friend. So long, everybody! We'll miss you. Live your lives to the fullest, and I'll see you again when you're done. Bye, friend. This adventure's been a great one. The end of the next dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Episode 50. dbznextdimension.lipson.com Let's say goodbye. So this time around, for something extra, I'm going to do a pretty quick review of the novel In the Lake of the Woods, which is a 1994 novel by Tim O'Brien and the first novel he wrote after The Things They Carried. It's also unique in that it doesn't entirely involve stories about Vietnam, even though the war is pretty central to the plot. The story centers around a missing person. Kathy Wade, the wife of John Wade, has disappeared. John and Kathy have recently taken a vacation in a town in Minnesota called Lake of the Woods, which is one of those pretty quiet camping and fishing villages that you find in places like the Upper Midwest or New England, for instance. The idea behind the vacation was for the two of them to escape and recharge after the fallout of the end of his political career. Having once been lieutenant governor of Minnesota, John had run for U.S. Senate and lost by a huge landslide. The reason for this becomes evident through flashbacks over the course of the novel. The one thing that we get to know about John pretty early on the book is that he loves magic, and he has loved it since he was a little kid. So he more or less used to cope with his father's death when he was younger. 
John never really did become a professional musician or anything, but at a pivotal moment in his life, he was able to more or less make himself disappear. Back in the late 1960s, John served in Vietnam, and it's his time in Vietnam that becomes central to the story of his failed senatorial campaign. John's nickname in Charlie Company becomes Sorcerer because of his love of magic and his ability to more or less be in the background unseen. This comes in handy when after the war he covertly edits his records to expunge his presence at an infamous inf- incident. Unfortunately, he winds up not doing a very good jo- a good enough job because the journalist digs up dirt on him and it costs him the campaign. When Kathy disappears, John becomes a suspect. What O'Brien does is weave the two stories, the failed campaign and Kathy's disappearance, together to create a mystery, leaving a lot of the answers up to the reader. And I give you a pretty vague summary there, because I don't want to spoil too much for anyone who's interested in reading it. Because it's really worth the read. One of the things that I loved about the things they carried was O'Brien's ability to get inside the heads of his main characters. And he does the same thing here with John, whom we trust but also don't trust as someone innocent, especially as more and more details of his past come to light. It's an interesting change from the stories about vets being at home, because whereas the stories and the things they carried that involved time after the war seemed to revolve around PTSD and how a number of people's lives were messed up as a result of the war, this is more about the war's legacy later on down the line. To give you some context, it takes place in 1986, roughly around the same time as the last novel I looked at, which was In Country. And instead of his of a down-in-his-luck vet, we have a guy who has been pretty successful, but winds up being haunted by his actions in the war in a way that he probably didn't think possible because he thought he'd made himself more or less disappear. And what O'Brien does to make John a not-completely-trustworthy character is that he doesn't make him the narrator, instead uses an unnamed third-person narrator who is a Vietnam vet and is investigating John's story and by whose own admission is not the most trustworthy narrator. But he's not a journalist, more like the type of person who becomes obsessed with the story on the news and seeks out to become an expert or learn it as much as he can. The internet, of course, is filled with people like this these days, but that was rather unique for the early 1990s. But in work, but it works, and it works well. Some of the seeds are very memorable, and the plot is intriguing enough that it's a quick read that does stay with you for at least a little while after. That's my quick, very quick look at In the Lake of the Woods. I highly recommend checking it out. It is in print. You can pick it up at Barnes & Noble or Amazon or wherever you uh, you buy books. Um, I am going to be bringing back historical context. Uh, there's at least, uh, on a regular basis after I finish the Death of Joe Howland storyline, um, there's at least one episode of that Joe Howland storyline which involves historical context. But I wanted to take the historical context of the war to its final conclusion in 1975 or so. So I, what I did was I took out all of the issues that I have yet to cover, wrote down when they take place, and started planning around that. And so we'll jump around here and there a little bit, but for the most part, we'll, before this episode, before this series is over at episode 100, we will have covered pretty much most of the war since the the series began way back in, in the nom number one. Uh, when I find something popular culture-wise, movie, book, uh, television show or something that I would like to cover, I will just simply add it to the episode with the historical context as well, so you'll have a slightly longer episode that time. 
Uh, and then I'll just make for a wider variety because I just keep finding stuff that I find interesting. So, and for the next few episodes, we'll have mainly the the extra the extra reviews in addition to the review of the comics. So, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed this issue, and I hope you come back next time for my look at the Nom Number Fifty Four, which is the first part of Chuck Dixon and Wayne Van Zant's story, The Death of Joe Hallen. So, until then, thanks for listening. And take care. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. In Country also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. <laughs>